Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Welcome to Behind the Slate, everybody. I am your host, Aaron Strand. Today's show continues our narrative about Melvin Van Peebles and the history of black representation in American entertainment. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, you may want to go back and check out those shows. In part two of our Van Peebles series, Melvin leaves the United States in 1959, goes to Europe, and doesn't return to the U.S. until 1967. But those intervening eight years are a time of great transition and uncertainty in Hollywood and are critical to understanding Melvin's future art. To help tell this story, I am joined by Christopher Sieving. He is a professor of film studies at the University of Georgia, Athens, home to the back-to-back national champion Georgia Bulldogs. Uh, His latest book, (laughs) he just rolled his eyes at me, his latest book is titled Pleading the Blood, Bill Gunn's Ganja and Hess, which I cannot wait to read. So please, if you are a Ganja and Hess fan or you want to learn more about this amazing film, go buy that book. But his first book and the subject of today's podcasts is called Soul Searching Black Themed Cinema from the March on Washington to the Rise of Black Exploitation. It was a fantastic read and I can't wait to get into it more. Chris, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. So this book covers a really fascinating topic and a real blind spot in our understanding, certainly my understanding of film history, which is the early attempts at integration and acceptance of black filmmakers and black stories into mainstream Hollywood. So talk us through how this process really begins in sort of the mid to late 50s. Uh, My book, yeah, I I pick up with the early 1960s. uh, And during this period... This is, of course, the the Kennedy administration. Robert Kennedy, the attorney general, is leading a campaign to desegregate uh, American movie theaters. The side effect that comes with this uh, with this desegregation of of film theaters across the country is the end of the so-called race cinema movies aimed specifically at black audiences, featuring black casts telling stories of interest to uh, to African Americans. Race cinema goes back to the uh, to the teens. By the 1950s, it's it's starting to go into uh, into decline as more and more theaters are are desegregating more and more regions of the of the country are are desegregating film theaters. On the one hand, there is social progress with respect to you know the fact that these institutions are being uh, are being desegregated. It it also has the uh, has the side effect of eliminating this forty year old or so tradition of uh, of race movies of movies that are made specifically for black audiences, um, and in some cases made by black filmmakers. Although that is less and less the case with the coming of sound and the increasing uh, the increasing expense of of making movies. Hollywood at the end of the 1950s is occasionally making movies for the most part musicals that are all black cast. I guess the best known of these is Carmen Jones in 1954 
uh, and then Porgy and Bess in 1959. And of course, at the same time, the civil rights movement is starting to gain visibility uh, within quote-unquote mainstream America. But it's sort of a strange phenomenon, right? Because the civil rights movement is really playing out on TV screens, whether through mm-hmm. news coverage or, I mean, really, I guess, mainly through news coverage. And that's really where the representation is happening. And you're ending with this weird dichotomy of because of the delay and the expense and the processing time it takes to get a movie onto the screen, you're having these two worlds where one world of America is playing out on television and one world of America is playing out on the cinema that's no longer sort of attached to reality. And yet, because of the market forces involved, studios are slow to adapt to these changing circumstances. So you get these early attempts at trying to find some crossover. And I guess you sort of mentioned in your book that 1961's A Raisin in the Sun was sort of the a first a first attempt of Hollywood. So what happened with that production? Well, I guess it's it's a first attempt with regard to a drama with a largely black cast. So in 1961, and A Raisin in the Sun has been a tremendous success uh, on Broadway. A lot of the Broadway cast acted in the uh, in the adaptation as well. Uh, so Columbia takes a chance on uh, adapting this uh, this property uh, into a film. Of course, they hire a, a white director rather than the black director who had been uh, guiding the, the the stage play. There's pretty high hopes for A Raisin in the Sun because of its high profile, because it features Sidney Poitier, who is fast becoming the one bankable uh, black movie star at that time. It's just a couple years out from The Defiant Ones, uh, which got him an Oscar nomination. But Columbia also... And I had the chance to uh, to read some some studio memos with regard to the film. They don't completely, I guess, they don't really understand what audience uh, will would respond to you know to an adaptation of this uh, of this film. Um, Columbia is very conscious of the reactions of the white audience. There are a number of uh, of suggested changes to the scripts, which Lorraine Hansberry adapted from her uh, from her own play. And the film is is a bit underwhelming at the box office when it finally does come out, uh, which a lot of people within the industry and and pundits outside the industry feel that well this this was an opportunity wasted. At the same time, of course, and this is the early '60s, civil rights is becoming the number one domestic issue in the United States culminating in 1963 when there's a number of of very high profile events the march on washington the assassination of medgar evers that summer the continuation of or at least this is this comes very soon after uh the uh, freedom summer the the freedom rides throughout the uh, throughout the south so civil rights and the rights of black americans is the number one issue on the news Television is where most white Americans are exposed to black faces uh, and learn about black concerns. Not the big screen, not uh, not movies. And I think the the relative failure of A Raisin and the Sun 
discourages or continues to discourage major studios from making black cast films. You have a you have a note here in the book that I wrote down here that I, I think it might be a studio note here, but it said, quote, the studio's conception of a good black film was one that downplayed black specific concerns in favor of a neutral treatment of universal themes. Mm-hmm. And this kind of this very whitewashed language of this has to be universal, a.k.a. playing to a white audience, which was their number one concern. This right. seems to dog the black movie, or at least the studio black movie, for the next decade. Uh, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. The studios, I think the studios did not believe that the black audience on its own could make a movie profitable, that they needed a crossover audience, they needed white people to also turn out uh, for these uh, for these films, which then had the effect of them <laughs> neutering uh, what was specifically black or, or of, of specific concern or specific interest to uh, to black audiences. So it is it's it's a, a frustrating cycle where the studios, you know, seem or at least they they give the you know the impression, uh, maybe after 1963, that yes, we want to make movies about black Americans, but because filmmaking is a prohibitively expensive art form, we have to be able to, you know, to, to guarantee that a, a white audience, a non black audience will also turn out for these films. And it's worth remembering as well that this is happening at a very unique time in the film industry. This is, you know, the 50s were uh, a time where studios were struggling with their divestment from their theater chains with the Supreme Court case that forced them to to end their monopolies over uh, vertical uh, distribution. And now with the spread of television, they are seeing their their profits really start to be hit as more and more Americans choose to spend their time in the attention economy that we're still dealing with today at home watching TV as opposed to going to the movies at night. And so they're under a tremendous amount of financial pressure to deliver films that can uh, keep them profitable and keep them sort of at their expectation and sort of capitalism's ugly head is really forcing their, their hand. Or it's not forcing their hand, it's pushing them to make certain decisions that they feel are safe. Yeah, in this period after the the Paramount decrees in 1948, yeah, the studios are making far fewer films than they used to. There's a lot of pressure on uh, on studios to make films that are that are going to appeal to the widest possible audience for the 19, you know, for much of the 1950s that <laughs> Sorry, you say widest, but it also sounds like you're saying whitest, which <laughs> right. which in their mind seems to be synonymous. So yeah. <laughs> They're they're trying to appeal to the to the broadest possible audience. Uh, and for most of the 50s uh, the studios really they step up their production of big budget special effects laden uh, epics, a lot of them religious, you know, Christian in nature. At the same time in the early 60s, there are a number of independent producers that are trying to break into the uh, into the industry. These independents felt like these are stories that need to be told. Uh, but it's also the it's also the case that uh, you know I think a lot of them felt that well this is this is a way to differentiate our products you know to to try to appeal to this audience that is underserved. So. In the early 60s, there are you know, a number of independent films 
um, some of them made by filmmakers who are, are often grouped within this category, sometimes referred to as the new American cinema, like John Cassavetes, who makes Shadows, like Shirley Clark, who makes The Connection in 1961, um, Jonas Mikis, the reviewer uh, and editor of Film Culture, uh, also makes his first feature. Uh, there is a kind of an interracial plot line. So now you've got The March on Washington, August 63, and a month later is the premiere of this film that I had never heard about until reading your book called Gone Are the Days by Ozzie Davis and produced by uh, the Hammer Brothers. So tell us about how this film came to be. Well, Gone Are the Days is an adaptation of Ozzie Davis's play Pearly Victorious, which uh, had a, a, a relatively successful run in New York in the late 50s. And it is, it's basically a satire on racism. It's uh, a, a satire on Southern race relations. Ozzie Davis in the play uh, played this self-proclaimed minister who is also kind of a con man, who comes back to his hometown in uh, in Georgia with the intention of buying a church. And his efforts are complicated and, and uh, thwarted by a local plantation owner. I mean, it sounds like a you know, like it, it could be the basis of a of a serious film, but it's clearly a comedy. It is meant to be funny. It is poking fun at racial stereotypes, uh, poking fun at white racism within the, uh, within the South. The release of this film, even the production of this film, was widely covered in the entertainment press, uh, like in, uh, in Variety, and promoted in African-American newspapers and, and even mainstream newspapers like the New York Times. Uh, there was a lot of hope attached to this uh, particular project. Again, like with the Raisin in the Sun, I think a lot of uh, a lot of people were really hoping that you know this film has the ingredients uh, that will make it successful with you know with a broad audience and that will kind of unleash uh, a, a wave of uh, of black themed filmmaking. Uh, well, unfortunately, Gone, Gone Are the Days was a tremendous flop. Uh, in its initial release. There are a number of interrelated reasons for this. Uh, one of them just simply being that fall 1963 is not exactly a time uh, in which black or white people really felt like laughing about racism. Medgar Evers had, had been assassinated and, and the Birmingham church bombing, I believe, happens just right. days or weeks before the uh, the release of this film. So the film is, uh, you know, it was a pretty significant failure, even though it was made for for next to nothing. And you identify this really strange dynamic with Gone Are the Days, which is that liberal white audiences felt that it was too mocking toward its black cast mm -hmm. to to find it palatable. Talk a little bit about this strange dynamic. This is something that also affected the play, you know, the original play in its uh, in its theatrical run. They, they had a hard time wrapping their their brains around the idea that you could make a pretty broad satirical comedy about race relations in the South. The liberal white audience, which is certainly it's the audience that I think the Hammers were hoping for. They were really counting on 
uh, support from a uh, from a, a white liberal audience on top of black audiences, but but neither constituency cared that uh, cared that much for the uh, for the film. It's so sad. You have this detail in your book that in the aftermath of the failure of Gone Are the Days, the Hammers never make another movie, and Ozzie Davis and Ruby D don't even mention it in their biography together, which is so which is so heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, they certainly talk about the play, the original play, but there is, I believe, there's no mention of, of the film adaptation in their uh, joint autobiography. Yeah, which is unfortunate because Gone Are the Days, as stagey as it is, and it's pretty clear that, that it's an adaptation of a play, uh, it is still, I think, a very good film, a, a, a very well-written and you know exceptionally well-acted film, exceptionally well-acted by Davis himself and Ruby D and Godfrey Cambridge is in it, in addition to white actors Alan Alda, I think it's his film debut, and Sorrel Book. Uh, it's a it's a tremendous cast and it's it's really quite funny. But again. In October 1963, it was seemed borderline obscene to joke about racism and and specifically Southern racism uh, and and the plantation kind of mentality at a time when you know white supremacists are are bombing churches and and killing school children. In the following year, after Gone Are the Days, we have this this other film come out in theaters, Black Like Me, which has made a, a certainly a a mark in our collective consciousness. I mostly know it from Eddie Murphy's skit on SNL of White Like Me. I didn't mm-hmm. even know there was a Black Like Me until much later. Uh, but so, what is Black Like Me? Because it's really hard to imagine as a modern audience that this would ever be in a cinema and yet it was i mean certainly by today's standards the premise behind black like me is pretty outrageous it's about uh, a white reporter who wants to report on the civil rights movement sort of from the inside he wants to experience what life is like for a black person in the segregated south so he dyes his skin and it's i mean it's just it 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 is such a terrible makeup effect uh that would not possibly convince <laughs> uh and you know James Whitmore who is a fine actor played the role and it's really kind of a thankless <laughs> a thankless role to say the least uh but he is completely unconvincing but black like me was it's based on a book it is based on what are supposedly real life events. You know, the, the author of this book was a journalist who had his skin dyed black and he passed as, uh, as an African-American in the South and then wrote this book about his, uh, his experiences and black like me was considered to be a milestone of civil rights reporting to some degree. I mean, kind of, you know, kind of muckraking, but uh, you know, it was thought to be an especially uh, a book that was especially sensitive to uh, the difficulties of navigating social life in the uh, in the South. The film, like a number of films that uh, that come out around 1964, and again, they're all they're all independently made. The film does kind of lean heavily into the angle, the the interracial. Uh, sex angle, and uh, and it certainly was marketed in a way that would lead the uh, you know the spectator to believe that well this is a movie about 
a white person who passes as a black man and then has presumably white women falling all over him. Um, there is in the mid sixties, you start to see films that even if that angle is not emphasized within the film itself, they were marketed in a, in a very leering, uh, kind of way, uh, you know, with ad campaigns designed to make, uh, the viewer think that this is going to be really some sort of salacious tale of, of interracial, uh, sexuality. Black Like Me was, was comparatively speaking, one of the more successful, of these mid sixties independent films purportedly about civil rights or the civil rights movement or, or race relations. Uh, one potato, two potato is another one, uh, which actually deals with an interracial marriage and the, the problems that the couple, uh, endure in 1964, there are a couple of films in release that have stood the test of time that are more authentic treatments of uh, of black life in the uh, in the United States. One is set in the North, one set in the in the South. Uh, Nothing but a man is the one that takes place in the South. It's about a black couple in Alabama whose relationship is tested, and their eventual marriage is is tested by the system of Jim Crow. And the, the husband is, he's not a radical, he's not uh, an agitator, he's, he's just someone who tries to stand up for himself, and he's someone who is not necessarily going to back down. He's someone who is, you know, who demands a very basic level of respect uh, from those around him, and unfortunately he lives in this system where... No white man owes, owes him any respect. And it takes a psychological toll on him. Uh, and uh, eventually he splits up with his wife, goes back to uh, I think his hometown of, uh, I believe it's Birmingham, and uh, has an encounter with his father, who is a broken down alcoholic, that I think makes, uh, you know, makes the uh, the protagonist realize his his responsibilities to his uh, to his wife and to their uh, and to their son and he goes back uh, he goes back to them uh, nothing but a man was written and produced and directed by a couple of northern i want to say harvard educated men who worked in the television documentary field and who, to their credit, were very conscious of telling this story in a way that was, quote-unquote, authentic, uh, at least as authentic as it could be. And they did you know, a considerable amount of, of research and traveling through the South and staying with Black families and incorporating that, you know, the knowledge that they learned into, uh, into a script, uh, a script which was, to some degree, still criticized by African-American critics because it seemed to adhere to this idea of universality, this notion that for, you know, for white audiences to care about these characters, to care about this story, it has to be not so specific to African-Americans. The other film from uh, from 1964 that I wrote about is The Cool World. Yeah, Shirley Clark. Yes. You had this interesting detail in your book that as Gone Are the Days is sort of failing, 
you have Shirley Clark, again, uh, a white female director and a sort of notable for being this prominent New York female director. Martin Scorsese talks about her all the time. Uh, she had this film, The Connection, which is about uh, junkies waiting for uh, their dealer to show up in their apartment, which was adapted as a play. And, you know, so she's sort of got this edgy take, but she's adapting this book uh, into a movie called The Cool World. Again, we still have white filmmakers, white storytellers kind of taking a uh, control of the black narrative or, or asserting control over the black narrative. So talk to me a little bit about the genesis and the production of The Cool World. Well, it, it should also be noted that Clark's co-screenwriter was Carl Lee, uh, uh, African-American actor who was her partner at the time. So there, there is some input from an African-American creative with regard to the the script of the uh, of the cool world but that script does hew pretty closely to what happens in the uh, what happens in the novel the cool world as you mentioned was an adaptation of a of a book by a white author Warren Miller that was you know well received uh even James Baldwin you know gave it a very enthusiastic review when the book came out it's a kind of coming of age story about uh, you know maybe 15 or 16 year old uh, African American boy who uh, lives in Harlem. He's part of a gang. The film is composed of vignettes for the most part. There's not a, a real strong causal logic coursing through the uh, through the film, uh, but it's basically about his adventures, interactions uh, with other gangs, which you know result in in violence, uh, his fraught relationship with his mother, played by Gloria Foster, who was a, a single woman uh, trying to raise uh, trying to raise a child. There is a storyline in which he becomes involved with uh, a Puerto Rican girl. Uh, it is it's it's very picaresque it's very episodic uh, and it's done in this sort of heightened realist style uh Shirley Clark was I mean she was an avant-gardist uh, she began in the 1950s making uh, avant-garde shorts many of them dance films you know she started out as a dancer uh, and then yeah she uh, she adapted the connection uh, this off-Broadway play in 1961. Uh, and one of her investors on that film was uh, Frederick Wiseman, who later became known as kind of the dean of, uh, of, of American documentarists, uh, has been making documentary films for about 55 years. But at this point, he was a lawyer uh, who wanted to break into, uh, into the film industry. He produced The Cool World, and it was shot on location in Harlem, uh, mostly within a rundown tenement apartment, but they, there are there are a number of scenes shot on the streets. The the film kind of memorably opens with this harangue delivered by a um, you know a, a street preacher, uh, which fairly common in in Harlem in the early uh, in the early '60s, preaching what is essentially a, a very nationalist uh, kind of message. And the film was, as you might expect, really difficult to market because I don't think e even the filmmakers exactly knew what audience they were they were trying to attract. Over the course of production, 
whether it's in their public statements or kind of behind the scenes memos, which again, I was able to, you know, fortunate to, uh, to be able to, uh, to read. Clark and Lee seem very conscious about, you know, we don't want to make the same mistakes as earlier filmmakers did when treating subject matter like this. We want to be true to the experience of our, uh, of our characters. We don't particularly care if white people don't like this movie because we're, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to be authentic and we're trying to, you know, appeal to the experience of a specifically black viewer. It premieres at the, I believe, the Venice Film Festival, and it has a, a very gradual release the following, uh, the following year. The advertising poster for, uh, for the film would lead you to believe that it is an exploitation film about youth gangs in Harlem, um, about heroin addiction, about, uh, you know, salacious sexual relations. Uh, so the the way that the film was marketed and was it was distributed by Cinema Five, which distributed a lot of these films in the uh, in the mid '60s, led to it playing in a number of grindhouses uh, across the U.S. When when really it should have been seen in in art film theaters and it was it was shown in 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 some, but that kind of uncertainty about exactly which audience the film is for. I think led to its comparatively speaking its its financial failure. I don't think it was as successful as Nothing But a Man. It certainly was not as successful as Black Like Me. My book is about for the most part it's it's a chronicle of films that failed. At least failed in the sense that they did not reach the audience that they were hoping to reach. Um, either a black audience or a white audience, and and you know this is another one of those films that again there was a, a I think a lot of uh, a lot of expectations uh, for the film, despite the fact that it is you know it's it's pretty arty uh, in its uh, in its editing in its soundtrack, but there was I think still you know a number of expectations that the film would would perform well and find an audience and. Again, that didn't that didn't uh, happen. You have a quote here that Shirley Clark hoped to quote make a black film for the purpose of changing white consciousness, uh, which seems to be uh, a, a consistent theme with some of the films that we've uh, we've talked about so far, mm-hmm. and it seems to be part of this dual uh, problem that that these films have faced, which is uh, number one, sort of the target audience that they're going for, and then issues about distribution messaging. The cool world fell between the art house and the grind house and therefore really had a home in neither. Um, and these problems continue to plague the mainstream uh, black representation in cinema. We get to 1967, you know, the year that Hollywood changes, right? This is the this is the revolutionary year where we've got Bonnie and Clyde, we've got The Graduate, and we have Sidney Poitier, in two films that are both nominated for Best Picture. Uh, He's got In the Heat of the Night and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. So with all this kind of happening in the background, why is Sidney Poitier still sort of this celebrated public figure as sort of the only black actor who can get cast in major Hollywood films? Well, I guess the short answer is that he just proved to be very popular. Actually, the three Poitier vehicles that come out in 1967, In the Heat of the Night and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and To Serve with Love, uh, he is the top box office attraction in the U.S. 
needless to say, is the first time uh, a black actor had attained that uh, that position. And it's it's the culmination of uh, a career that had been slowly building, starting in the mid. 50s. He has a big success in 1958 with The Defiant Ones, which gets him an Oscar nomination. He then wins the Academy Award for, for Best Actor in 1963 for Lilies of the Field. I guess Lilies of the Field was a landmark uh, in his career, not just for the accolades that he received, but it helped to establish kind of the, the narrative pattern or the premise in a number of 1960s Poitier films which I refer to it in my book as as the assimilationist narrative. What happens in these films is Poitier is the lone major black figure who is inserted into or thrust into a, an otherwise all-white environment, an all-white milieu, and the film basically records his troubled assimilation, uh, in many cases, uh, within that world. Uh, in some of the films that he does in the mid-60s, very little is made of the fact that he, you know, that he is an African-American, that he is a black man. Uh, he's just, you know, one of the cast. He's the only non-white member of the cast. Uh, in the Heat of the Night, he's a Philadelphia detective who comes down to Mississippi it gets involved with a with a murder case and has this difficult relationship that he forges with the uh, the white sheriff of uh, I think it's Sparta, Mississippi, played by Rod Steiger. Uh, and in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, the problem of that film that needs to be resolved is his engagement to the the daughter of two white San Francisco liberals. This is the formula that works. Uh, as far as the studio uh, studios are concerned, this is their universal themes. <laughs> right? Yeah, these are these are essentially stories about how white people kind of come to terms with Poitiers' presence uh, or or Poitiers' appearance into uh, you know in their milieus. I looked this up. In the Heat of the Night wins the Academy Award for Best Picture. It's up against Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and. Do you know what the fifth film is? Oh, yeah. Dr. Doolittle. Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> Dr. Doolittle. One of these things does not fit with the others. One of those huge budgeted musicals that uh, the studios <laughs> thought were going to uh, keep them afloat, seeing how successful that formula had been with The Sound of Music. And, the, yeah, that was essentially kind of a pity nomination. Truly, truly an atrocious yeah. film. I, it, was, I, it was the Academy <laughs> doing doing a solid for 20th Century Fox, which had lost millions on that uh, on that film. Good God. I remember as a kid, I think after the Eddie Murphy Dr. Doolittle came out when I was when I was little and I went back and watched the, you know, excited as a little child because I was like really into like talking with I wanted to talk to animals, of course. And I watched the the 68 Doolittle and even as like a 10 year old, I was thinking, God, this is just awful. Uh, <laughs> uh, shocking. But anyway, all joking aside. So six, after 67 and after the success of these two assimilationist films, everything instantly changes. And these stories are almost instantly irrelevant. And you have you talk about in your book that two major events happen, the 1968 Kerner Report, and then, of course, on April 4th, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., 
So talk to me a little bit about the magnitude of these two events and then how Hollywood reacts to them. You can actually get a, a good sense of the abruptness, the suddenness with which everything seems to change just by gauging the the reception of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which comes out the very end of 1967 and is you know plays in theaters uh, through that uh, through that spring. And whereas the initial critical reaction to Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is by and large very positive, uh, within six months or so, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is, is widely regarded as completely compromised and really kind of insulting, just a really facile approach to, uh, to, to race relations uh, that is just it has completely lost all of its relevance. So yeah, in in uh, in early April, uh, Martin Luther King is assassinated in combination with the release of the Kerner Report, and the Kerner Report was the final report of uh, a commission that was put together by President Johnson at the time, and the objective of the commission was to understand the causes behind urban unrest, uh, behind violent protest within inner cities uh, that had been taking place every summer, basically going back until, you know, going back to the early 60s. Uh, So it was a a fact-finding commission led by governor of, of Illinois, Otto Kerner, hence the name Kerner Report. And the Kerner Report was, was made public in the spring of 1968, it starts off with what became a really famous and often cited uh, quotation, which is that uh, the United States, as it exists today, you know, ha- has devolved into. I'm paraphrasing, but has devolved into two separate, two two societies, separate and unequal. So one area, one arena of uh, of American life that the Kerner Report uh, devoted quite a bit of attention to was the media, both the news media and the entertainment media, and was very critical of Hollywood's reluctance to make movies about African-American issues, very condemning of the industries, both movies and television, the industry's failure to integrate crews, you know, to integrate the personnel who actually made movies and and made TV um, from the very top creative positions all the way down to the craftspeople who worked on these uh, these films. The immediate effect within the film industry was, I think, a realization on the part of the studios that they they needed to do something. They needed to make a, a, a fairly drastic change. That summer, Warner Brothers becomes the first studio to hire an African-American director, which is Gordon Parks. Gordon Parks um, made a film out of his uh, his book, The Learning Tree, for Warner Brothers. It came out the, the following year. There are more directors who are hired by studios over the course of the next year, including Melvin Van Peebles, who was hired by Columbia to make Watermelon Man, uh, and Ozzie Davis, who does Cotton Comes to Harlem. There's also a concerted push to hire more African-Americans in technical positions uh, to get them into the technical guilds, the unions. This particular quest uh, had been ongoing for decades uh, 
really since the 1940s, certainly, uh, it became, you know, a, a major goal of the NAACP under Walter White, you know, to, to integrate the technicians guilds in, in Hollywood, guilds that were famously discriminatory and basically barred African-Americans from, uh, from membership. Yeah. And, and needless to say, there's also the social consequences of, uh, of King's assassination and more demands to, you know, just to make films that actually reflected what was going on in American society uh, and stop hiding from it, stop denying that uh, the problem existed because the problem was you know, was everywhere and, and affected everybody. In 63, 64, it was independent producers. Now, finally, it's the major studios who make black-themed films. In the Heat of the Night and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, while they do hint at a, a society that is a bit, you know, at loggerheads about how to, you know, how to quote-unquote solve the race problem, essentially, I would classify them as, uh, as relatively optimistic that, you know, if, if only both sides would open their hearts to the others or to the other side, that uh, that real progress could be made. You don't get that same sense of optimism in these uh, late 60s studio films, uh, I think because there just wasn't a lot of optimism at the time about uh, the state or future of, of race relations and the prospect of blacks and whites living together in, in harmony. The first studio film to reflect this viewpoint, this this more this nationalistic viewpoint, um, and and express this doubt uh, that there could be any meaningful you know reconciliation between black people and white people was uh, was uptight, which Paramount um, distributed, directed by Jules Dassin, shot in the summer of 1968. King's assassination is part of the uh, is part of the storyline. It's a re- it's a it's basically a black cast remake of the Informer, the John Ford film from the mid '30s, but set in the you know the inner city of uh, of Cleveland. Prior to that, uh, or roughly the same time, uh, 20th Century Fox and David Wolper purchased the rights to William Styron's novel, uh, The Confessions of Nat Turner which had, I believe, just won the Pulitzer Prize for 1967. Again, we've got a white author telling a story that is, um, you know, the, the Nat Turner story, of course, who, Nat Turner, who led uh, an enslaved person's rebellion that ended up killing a whole bunch of people, very bloody rebellion, had also at this point, his story was being turned in, into sort of a black power nationalist narrative. He was, he was being given a somewhat heroic treatment. And... Here comes uh, William Styron, who writes this book that turns him into more of a Hamlet-type protagonist filled with all these sort of like inner uh, doubts and furthermore, these sort of Freudian um, sexual quirks. So tell us a little bit about the content of the novel and why it instantly became a sort of controversial flashpoint. Yeah, the novel is a fictionalization of the life of of Nat Turner and the rebellion he commanded in Virginia in 1831, in which a number of white people were killed. That rebellion was put down pretty quickly, and you know, 
ultimately dozens of uh, enslaved uh, African Americans were were executed. Uh, Turner actually eluded capture for I think I think several months yeah. until he was he was finally captured. He was was held in jail. A white man from the community actually went to his cell, interviewed him, and his quote-unquote confession, and there's a lot of debate about the, the historical veracity of, of this, this confession, but was, uh, you know, was published, and Styron was, uh, I think, to a large degree, working from that, uh, from that statement and it's, as I said, it's it's a fictionalization that is very heavy, heavily emphasizes this psychological turmoil within uh, within Nat Turner, his struggles with self doubt. Uh, he is ultimately unable to act. You know, he is not much of a commander because he's just kind of gripped by anxiety and 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 doubt. Uh, and he also, as a teenager, has a sexual liaison with another teenage boy. And Nat the adult also has this intense lust for the white daughter of one of his uh, one of his enslavers, which is not consummated, but which nonetheless he obsesses over and ultimately, uh, and this is one of the few of historical details that you know from in Styron's book that is you know that is verifiable. Uh, apparently, the only person that Nat Turner himself killed during this rebellion was this 19-year-old white woman, Margaret Whitehead. From that historical detail, Styron creates this fantasy on on Nat's part, this sexual obsession, which you know to Styron, I think. You know, there must have been some reason why this woman was the only person that Nat Turner killed. Perhaps it was, you know, it stemmed from some kind of, of uh, lust on his uh, on his part. So the book was very highly praised when it came out. Like I said, it won the Pulitzer Prize cover story in, in Newsweek. Bidding for the movie rights begin pretty quickly. Uh, and I believe I think David Wolper, I think David Wolper, as an independent producer, um, won the rights. He then, you know, he kind of hooks up with 20th Century Fox uh, to serve as the distributor of this film. Norman Jewison is hired to uh, to direct. Jewison is uh, he just directed in the Heat of the Night, so he's right. kind of coming over with that with that cred. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, African American playwright Lewis Peterson. Uh, is tasked with writing the screenplay. So it's, you know, a sizable budget. It's going to be a major prestige picture. And so it uh, goes into production. Everything goes great. It wins an Academy Award and uh, the rest is history, right? (laughs) Not exactly. Almost from the beginning, from when it was announced that that there was going to be a a movie made from, from Styron's novel, there is an organized protest led by black author Louise Merriweather. She brings on board a number of prominent uh, African-Americans in the entertainment industry, notably Ozzie Davis, and they put forth a number of objections, problems that they had with Styron's book, like the fact that the only romantic interest in his life is this spoiled, kind of airheaded uh, 19-year-old white woman they object to this partly on the basis of there being 
you know, by some historical accounts, Nat Turner did have a wife uh, who I, I think lived uh, on another uh, on another plantation. But they were this organization was very upset with the fact that uh, this was never even mentioned in the novel. That Turner was, you know, made like this celibate uh, neurotic. They objected to the fact that he seemed so indecisive and cowardly during the actual uh, the actual insurrection. I wrote down the sort of the statement that they released. I'm just going to read it out because it really kind of puts you in the mindset. They say, "Quote, gentlemen." You are murdering the spirit of Nat Turner, one of the great ethnic heroes of black Americans. You are distorting and falsifying the history of black people in this country, and by extension, defaming the entire black race. You are pandering to white racism and deepening the gulf of alienation between the races. These are the crimes you are committing and will continue to commit if you persist in producing a motion picture based on the confessions of Nat Turner by William Styron. Forceful words here from mm-hmm. from this coalition. Yes, <laughs> to say the least. This statement uh, was sent to Jewison and uh, and Wolper and you know all of the the main figures uh, on the uh, on the production. And yeah, as, as the final sentence makes clear, it's Styron's book that that is what they object to. And it's also worth noting that this same summer there is a uh, a book published that rebuts Styron's portrayal of uh, of Nat Turner. I think it's I think the title was Ten Black Writers Respond," uh, and it was ten you know very well regarded black academics and and critics who point by point uh, kind of refute Styron's characterization of uh, of Nat Turner and in very heated language and in some of the uh, the essays. So there begins this long drawn out negotiation between Louise Merriweather's group and Wolper and Jewison on the other. Eventually Jewison decides to drop out and distance himself from the uh, from the project. Styron this entire time is, you know, fiercely defends his right to, you know, to make what he wants out of this character who he claims, you know, almost nothing is known, to which his uh, his his critics would would point out, well, I mean, you know nothing of the oral tradition, uh, the oral history of uh, of Nat Turner's rebellion and of of Nat Turner's life, which we do know because we grew up African Americans, uh, you know, we grew up learning about Black history. You obviously never did. So a replacement is found for Jewison, Sidney Lumet, and eventually there is an agreement uh, between this organization and, uh, and, and 20th Century Fox in which the film would no longer be solely based on Styron's novel, but also on other, uh, on other sources and some other details, you know, having to do with, you know, the, the portrait that was, that was painted of, uh, of Turner as a leader but ultimately, it, it didn't matter because ultimately Fox canceled uh, canceled the project. You could argue that had this movie been made, it would have been perhaps the, the first instance of a Hollywood studio making into a prestige project. Uh, and that would have finally made studios more amenable to making movies about black history. 
you know, as we know, when black exploitation, when that cycle hits uh, in the early 70s, the most popular of the movies targeted at black audiences in the early 70s tended to be set in contemporary urban America and and historical pictures did not do particularly well. The fact that it was just canceled outright was a, a bad omen. <laughs> the f- and the fallout is just tremendous. Concurrently with this production of Nat Turner, there were two different productions or uh, pre-production processes about stories of Malcolm X. There was um, uh, Columbia had the autobiography of Malcolm X and Fox also had Malcolm X, the script written by James Baldwin. I think it was the other way around. I think Columbia. Oh, apologies. Columbia was uh, or brought on James Baldwin to adapt the the Alex Haley book. And, and so in the aftermath of the Nat Turner uh, cancellation. You have both these projects scrapped. And then, like you said, there wasn't a uh, a major studio commitment to a big budget black cast prestige historical picture until the color purple in 1985. I mean, this is just astounding. You could argue that only someone with the power in the film industry and the clout of Steven Spielberg in the mid 80s could have got that movie produced. The fallout is also twofold in that the controversy around the portrayal of Nat Turner in this film then sort of creates what will become the the macho and sort of uh, decisive hero that will come to frame the rest of the black exploitation film movement. So talk a little bit about how the fallout of Nat Turner then led to the quote unquote black exploitation hero. Well, I want to be careful in asserting a direct relationship. I don't I don't want to imply that black activists uh or activist group uh, such as Louise Merriweather's uh, organization are responsible for the one-dimensionality of the black exploitation hero in the uh, in the early 70s. The fact that the William Styron version of of Nat Turner uh, was objected to so vociferously, seemingly on the grounds that black audiences, politically conscious black audiences or black viewers, did not want a indecisive, neurotic hesitant Nat Turner and you can certainly understand why this would be at the end of the at the end of the 1960s they wanted heroes they wanted to promote historical figures who had been freedom fighters and who they hoped would would serve as models for you know for a new generation of activism more along the lines of Malcolm X than than Martin Luther King the studios may have concluded from this that we're going to get in trouble if we make movies about black protagonists in which they are depicted as weak, uh, in which they are depicted as as not sufficiently committed to the cause of black liberation. And I think the, the lesson that they took from that metamorphosed into uh, what we have at the beginning of the of the 1970s when MGM produces Shaft, when Warner Brothers uh, distributes Superfly, movies featuring black superheroes, you know, featuring and and usually on the quote unquote right side of the law. Uh, often these uh, the protagonists in black exploitation films are police officers, detectives, uh, crime fighters. 
the lessons that that the studios may have taken from the failure of of uh, you know the cancellation of the uh, of the Nat Turner project was to basically purposefully simplify black characterization and to to cater to a, a, a mentality of okay you want black heroes we're going to give you black heroes and so yeah we're going to show them kicking ass you know we're going to show them um, victorious. As the early 1970s black critics of black exploitation uh, would would point out, you know this this is not exactly what best serves the black audience either. These are stereotypes. These are completely one-dimensional characters who you know have no interiority. But it's the formula that financially seemed to work. Movies like Doctor Doolittle kind of conclusively showed to the studios that there is no longer a mass audience. We can no longer count on there being this undifferentiated popular audience who are all interested in seeing the same kind of movie. And especially there's a, there's a a pretty crippling recession in Hollywood in 1969. We have to start making movies. Maybe they're not going to, you know, set the world on fire at the box office, but at least they will appeal to a certain important demographic and they will be profitable enough. Uh, So as long as you could keep budgets low, you know, much lower than what had been budgeted, you know, what had been planned for the confessions of Nat Turner, as long as you keep budgets low, um, you don't even need stars, you just need this formula, and you're going to make, you know, dependable profits. It's just a fascinating story about a fascinating decade in film history, and uh, I really encourage everybody to go out and buy the book, because we are just barely kind of touching the surface here. Chris provides so many details. There's quoted memos from in the studio setting or from these independent producers. I mean, it's just really, really fascinating stuff. So I encourage everybody to go out and buy Soul Searching, Black-themed cinema from the March on Washington to the rise of black exploitation. You can get it wherever books are sold. Um, and it's just amazing. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I really appreciate it and learned a lot from this conversation. Thank you for inviting me. I really, uh, really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about this. Yeah. Is there is there a place where people can follow you, find out about your future work, anything like that? Yeah, you can probably find me uh, pretty easily on, on Twitter, just you know by my name, Christopher Sieving. And yeah, I've got some pinned tweets <laughs> Uh, regarding, you know, my, my more recent book on Ganjin Hess. And yeah, hopefully that some people listening to this would find that interesting as well. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Chris, thank you so much again. And uh, until next time, that's a wrap. <laughs>